Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with the stand-up comedian Mae Martin and my conversation with a true Hollywood icon, Bruce Dern. But yeah, let's, let's get started this way. The very first time that Mae Martin heard stand-up comedy, they were hooked. I'm not talking like posters on the wall hooked or like spending all night on Wikipedia hooked. I mean, Mae Martin was so hooked on stand-up comedy, they dropped out of high school to start performing. That's how much they wanted to make their dream happen. May starts out taking Second City classes in Toronto when they're 13. Within two years, they're performing on stage a few nights a week. Eventually, they move to the UK. And in the past couple of years, their career has really been blowing up. So during the pandemic, May writes and stars in this semi-autobiographical show called Feel Good. I don't know if you saw that. It's good good holiday viewing. Uh, They were part of one of the greatest game shows of all time, the British show Taskmaster, which is must holiday viewing. And then they released one of the most talked about comedy specials of the year. It's called Sap, and it's out on Netflix now. So at this time of year, we're revisiting some of our favorite conversations of the year that was, in case you missed them. And I wanted to play this one with Mae Martin. We talked when Sap came out, and we talked a lot about their Canadian roots and a lot about those complicated teenage years when it all started. How are you? I'm so well. Hi, Tom. Um, congrats on the special. Um, you filmed it in Vancouver, right? I did, yeah. Why did you want to film the special in Canada? It has a, um, well, it's got a nice sort of sentimental homecoming feeling. And I, I haven't, I hadn't done a show in Vancouver since I was 20. So in like 15 years. And uh, so I was hoping the audience would be warm and Canadian and receptive. And, and they were. Yeah, so it was, it was really nice. How has it been since it came out? Like, how are you doing? I think the reaction's been really, really great. I mean, I'm addicted to my phone. I'm reading every single thing that is ever said about me ever and doing all the things they tell you not to do for your mental health, like just scrolling endlessly. But yeah, the reaction's been great. And um, Netflix has really got behind it, I think. So it's been it's been great. You, you're you doing all the things you're not supposed to do. You're, you're looking at all the comments. You're reading all the articles and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I'm, and, you know, I'll internalize the one negative thing and oh, yeah. stew over that for days. And uh, yeah, no, I because I know you're not supposed to because it, it's all meaningless at the end of the day, but you can't help it. I find there's two kinds of people. There, there's there's people who, who read every single thing that's written about them online. And then there's like liars because I don't know anyone who yeah. actually, <laughs> I don't know anyone who actually I say to, I used I used to be one of the people who'd be like, you know, actually, you know, it's important not to read it. And to give validity. Yeah. But at the same time, I was reading I was reading everything. Of course. Of course. It's so impossible not to. So um, I, I, I want to talk more about the new special, but I think we should go back and sort of tell the story a little bit. And I, I kind of told some of it in the introduction there about how you, you were obsessed with comedy when you were like 13 years old, right? Like how, how obsessed? Like how often were you seeing shows? Well, I started taking improv classes at Second City when I was 13. And then really quickly, I was seeing the the regular Second City show two or three nights a week. And I don't know why my parents gave me such a long leash, but um, 
yeah and then that sort of escalated and by the time I was 15 I was kind of either yeah performing maybe four or five nights a week so I was very tired at school and yeah dropped out to do it full time started working in the box office at Second City so I was just in the building all the time and really immersed in it I was deeply profoundly obsessed by not just the medium of stand-up but the whole world and the social scene and the green rooms and it was very intoxicating to an awkward teen the 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 hang the hang backstage like the green rooms and all that stuff that was as exciting to you as the as the stage itself yeah especially somewhere like second city where the walls are just covered with pictures of you know your idols over the years and the cast of sctv and all these you know the hallowed <laughs> the hallowed walls it's yeah who were who were the comedians at that time, like in, in downtown Toronto at Second City, who you were sort of obsessed with? Well, I was obsessed with the, the people I grew up watching, like SCTV and Kids in the Hall and I think Tom Green at that time and people like that. But the the people I was seeing perform were, um, well, one friendship I've maintained is um, Carolyn Taylor, who's from Baroness Von Sketch Show. Yeah, yeah. She was on the Second City main stage when I was 13 and I used to go and wait at the stage door and uh, chat to her and I'd like braces and acne and um, she's now one of my best friends. So that's a more than 20 years, that friendship. And it's yeah. Amazing watching her like flourish and getting to write on that show as well. It felt like full circle vibe. What, why do you think it was so, why do you think you were so into it? Why do you think it kept, cause you know, people who are into comedy like it and they might watch tapes or they might watch like just for laughs on TV or something like that. Like I did, but you know, what, why do you think it became such an obsession for you? Hmm. I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, I talk about it in therapy a lot, but I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think it's, I was probably feeling sort of like a, a sense of otherness at school. This was the nineties too. This was the era of girl bands and boy bands, right? The question you needed to know an answer to at my school was which Spice Girl are you? And it was like, you needed to know, you'd be in the, like in the hall and a group of girls would corner you and be like, which one are you? It's like, cause they're organizing lip syncs and stuff. Like they need to know, I don't like no judgment. They did need to know where you fit into the constellation. She's like, which one are you? And I was like, I like, Justin Timberlake? I don't know. <laughs> Nick Carter? You know, looking back, like I, I was probably queer and non-binary and didn't know those things. And then there was this adult world where people were being really celebrated for their differences and could be self-deprecating and awkward and funny and be applauded for that. And I just thought it was like a superpower that these people had. And my parents were very funny and very into comedy. Like my dad, I could tell, really respected comedy. And I you know, I think at one point wanted to be a comedian. So it was, yeah, it felt like a valid thing. I want to play a clip from, I think, I think you were 16 years old here and I hope you could play it and you might be able to tell us a little bit about it. Oh God. I'm, I'm here to deliver my speech on uh, women in the media because there's a lot of them around. There's women in all areas of the media in film and television. And, sorry, I'm having a party next Friday. I don't know if you guys want to come. Uh, starts at 6, it's at St. Clair and Bathurst. My mom says you have to be gone by 7.30. That's cool, but uh, it's going to be fun. I thought we could um, have some carrot sticks or watch taped episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I have season one and two on tape. Uh, so t- tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> um, what's crazy is when you watch that clip, it... That was a, a televised on the Comedy Network. I think mm-hmm. it was a, a Tim Sims Encouragement Fund Award. I was I was nominated for. So yeah, I'm 16. I'm doing a character. So I'm dressed in my school uniform. 
Uh, I think the character was called Catherine Butchko. And uh, yeah, but when you watch that clip, it looks like it was filmed in 1970. Something about the film quality is so grainy. <laughs> or, it makes me feel like I'm 100 now because it really seems like a blast from the past. Um, but man, I was so nervous, so nervous. And and it, but yeah, interesting that I was doing these big characters, you know. I was gonna say that, like, it's inter- it was interesting to me that you were doing characters at all because, like, I think when you watch like a lot of comics, you know, luckily because of YouTube, you could see some comics when they're like fourteen and fifteen years old, and you know, th- th- typically the style is similar. Like, I saw the clip of Seth Rogen, I think, when he was like fourteen, and it was it was similar yeah. to what he's doing. It's interesting to me that back then you were doing like characters and big musical numbers as a, as you know, because that's very different yeah. than what you do now. Yeah, that's well, I mean, I grew up loving sketch comedy and character comedy. That's the that's mainly what I watched. I yeah, and and improv and things like that. There's it was something so magical to me about uh you know, two comics together and their proximity and and is that kind of electric chemistry. So, I only sort of started doing stand up uh yeah, when I was about 15 or 16. But before that, I really wanted to do characters and, and things like that. I think I'm focusing on that time because in your in your special, you talk about how like you're so you were sort of obsessed with you are sort of obsessed with your teenage years. Yes. And also listening to that clip, I'm like, God, I, I, I seem so vulnerable. I mean, it's a character for sure. But when you I look so young when I watch it and um, so much was going on in my life at that time. And, and uh, it was such a chaotic explosive time like I think I was a, about to get kicked out of my house or I just had and I was really partying too much and um yeah just kind of totally untethered and so it's crazy to watch and yeah so much has happened since then yeah I mean back back then you were you were there was a lot of drugs in your life there was a lot of you know addiction issues in your life you were getting as you mentioned you're getting kicked out of your house and what's interesting to me about that is is not, is not just that it happened but that like you're, you're you seem to be interested in sort of revisiting a lot like including in the in the new special yeah like I, I guess well a lot of my friends and I when we get together we're still sort of picking at the scabs of adolescence and yeah. remembering those times it's such a visceral time for anyone and i'm interested in i'm interested kind of in general about how we as a society deal with teenagers and um and that kind of thing but yeah maybe it's because i i feel like a totally different person now to to who i was then and so i'm trying to sift through it sometimes looking for clues about why it got so crazy and i just remember feeling so angry and kind of confused about the world and it's just been an interesting time in the past few years because it feels like we can't really deny that the systems that we're participating in are really messed up. So I feel like maybe teenagers are right to be angry, but they just have to find sort of healthy ways to rebel instead of self-destructing. But yeah, I, I think about it a lot. I want—I don't know. That's that's one of my favorite jokes in the special, mate, is like where you talk about, I think it's oatmeal, like you got oatmeal yeah. tattooed on the inside of your wrist. In a way, my anger was valid. And I think a lot of teenagers feel this like righteous indignation and stuff. But it was the method of my rebellion was was garbage. Like it was like so self-destructive and self-involved. And like, I, you know, it was impotent ultimately. Like I got this tattoo uh, when I was 16. It says oatmeal. Um, <laughs> it says oatmeal twice. And I remember being like, the man, you know, <laughs> like what? Yeah, the man. Yeah. But really, just all I've was my own job prospects. I have the word oatmeal 
tattooed on my <laughs> on my wrist because I think because someone I had a crush on like drew it on me and I thought that would be really funny if I got it tattooed and also just this nihilistic like yeah whatever and yeah my mom is a, a little less funny every day since I got it you know my mom told me over the weekend that she was like you made my you made some of those years really hard because I had read No Logo by Naomi Klein when I was like, uh, uh, I think yeah, you and I yeah. are the same age. So I read that when I was like, what, we were like 12? Yeah. And yeah. and I remember, and I was like, so I didn't want to wear Nike anymore. I didn't want to wear anything that was like made with, with you know, with sort of unjust labor practices. But I led that to like anything with a logo on it. Like I wouldn't wear like a National Geographic t-shirt. I wouldn't wear like, a, you know. And yeah. I, I don't really know what I was trying to achieve there, except for making, <laughs> making my mom's shopping life incredibly challenging. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I wonder if we would, I bet we would have got along. Yeah, I bet the two of us just angry listening to Kid A and- um, Yeah, and just slightly misguided rebellions, but like knowing that we're onto something, you know, that, that I get why it's so sort of threatening to, to adults sometimes, that teen rebellion, because it makes you aware of all the parts of yourself and your- critical thinking that you've had to suppress just to get by in the world, you know? Yeah. Like we, we are pointing out the things that, that they have to kind of put away just to try and live, which is that, which I love in the special, you talk about why you love Gen Z so much. I feel like Gen Z is incredible and I don't believe that they're just on TikTok. I think they're wicked. They're out there. They're doing stuff. They're like, you know, protesting climate change and dismantling rigid gender binaries. Like, what was I doing? I was like slithering around being like, does anyone have any acid? <laughs> they seem to be not as motivated by binaries. They seem to be not as motivated by like past logic. I think they're great, Gen Z. Yeah, I think they're really great. I, they they come to my, my shows and they just seem light years ahead of where I was at that age for sure. Uh, speaking of kind of cre uh, creating identity, I wanted to play a, a clip from SAP. Just take a listen to this. We're little like experience hunters collecting these to put them on our brain shelves and be like, I'm me. I'm <laughs> like, and I always visualize every experience that we collect is like a little novelty snow globe, you know, and we're just going around being like, <laughs> like one time I saw Antonio Banderas at the airport. Yes, I did. And I'm myself and no one else is me. I <laughs> and then all human interaction is really is. I've really noticed this coming out of the pandemic is all human interaction is just basically taking turns, showing each other our snow globes. I mean, going back to what you were talking about with the sort of life experiences that you've, you've gone through and translating them into, into comedy and TV, for people who don't know, you created this semi-autobiographical TV show called Feel Good, um, which explored a lot of different things, addiction, a secret relationship. I guess what I'm curious about there is what was it like for that to come out and for people to feel like they knew you? Well, it came out in um, in the pandemic. Both seasons came out in the pandemic. So I think that was kind of helpful for me because I didn't, uh, I got to kind of, you know, when I put my phone away, it just wasn't happening <laughs> because I wasn't really out and about in the world and meeting people and talking to people who'd seen the show. So I think that eased me into it a little bit. But um, yeah, there's definitely been a, a marked difference in the types of conversations I'm having with audience members after shows and things where they're like they want to talk trauma you know <laughs> they want to talk about deep stuff and and I'm uh, I'm into it I yeah I wish I could be like they think they know me and they don't but I feel like they sort of do to an extent which is unsettling but also satisfying but um yeah I think because it, I, I'd never written anything like that I think I wasn't really self-editing 
and I didn't really know what it would feel like to revisit some of those things. And, but it was good. It meant I kind of threw myself into it. If I, if I wrote it now, I might be more, I might be more guarded. <laughs> you mean like to revisit those things? Like, I mean, you've been open in the past about like the addiction you, you dealt with when you were younger. I guess I never thought about that. You'd have to, in order to portray that in the show, you'd actually have to like re-inhabit the things that you once did, which can't be easy once you get past them. Yeah, it's like, you know, sort of snorting fake cocaine and stuff, and which on the page you think, yeah, great, this is narratively where where we have to go. But um, in practice is a little bit, is a little bit odd. But luckily, you know, I'm I'm in a, a solid a solid place with lots of nice buddies around, and I, I did have a blast making the show. But um, yeah, yeah, very very weird experience, very surreal. How was acting? Because I know you had to learn how to act to do the show too. Oh man, I am so <laughs> in awe of really good actors. I, I I I I mean, I loved it, but I found it so scary and challenging. With stand up, it's just you on a stage and. And you can easily pivot if it's not going well. And you have this immediate feedback of whether you're doing a decent job. And so there's something really unnerving about delivering a punchline. And then, you know, I, I almost wanted to look around at the crew and be like, did I did I land that joke? No one's laughing. Like, yeah, but it was it was fun. I really loved it. I I I made sure that I had a lot of rehearsal time with my my co-star because it was a pretty intimate love story. And so we had about three weeks before we started filming, kind of like a play, which I, I didn't realize is like unheard of for TV to have that long to kind of inhabit it and rehearse. And I think that was helpful because I was so nervous. What's the most surprising thing about, about acting that maybe you weren't ready for? Hmm. Well, the only way I know how to act is to really do a kind of a, a emotional recall and to really feel the feelings. It, it sounds so basic. I, I truly didn't know. I, I thought it was like you arrange your face to look sad or angry. Like I was so focused on my face going into it. I was like, I hope my face looks real sad. And then <laughs> someone was like, don't think about your face. Just think about feeling sad, just feel sad. And then your face will naturally look sad. And I was like, oh, of course that's, we're not thinking about what our face is doing, but it's so hard to get away from that self-consciousness. May, I don't think I ever thought of that. So you're like when actors like do the death of a parent or something like that, they have to actually put themselves through like the torture of feeling that sadness i guess so i mean that's what maybe people have different ways of doing it but yeah i definitely now understand that it's not about just like making your making your face look uh the shape of a sad face you know yeah i mean it's a couple of times now i feel like in our conversation like um we sort of like touched on something that was a little bit hard, like be it like, you know, um, or addiction or even just the, the experience of like coming onto set for the first time or having to relive those things. And you said a couple of times, you know, like, yeah, but luckily, you know, I'm in a better place now or like I got a good crew around me. And that kind of reminds me of the special because, you know, it, it feels so lighthearted in some ways. It feels, even though you're talking about real things, it feels joyful and, and lighthearted. Like, was that... Was that intentional going into how you wanted to write this show? I think with the, with the special, it happened organically, which is such a nice surprise. But I, um, yeah, I was just coming out of the pandemic and out of making feel good, which was so uh, personal, and it was a, a comedy drama. So it, you know, I wanted to have a nice time, and I was touring, um, doing improv, improvised stand up, and uh, yeah, I just found I was gravitating towards silliness more and the kind of clowniness that you have when you're a kid when someone tells you you're funny, you know, and, and less in my head and 
And so I think you can, I think you can really tell I'm having a, a good time in the special and the show kind of grew out of that. And, and uh, yeah, I've had a really good year, you know? Yeah. I think in the special, you say it was the best, the best year of your life. Yeah. I mean, that's to do with, you know, I had, I had top surgery like a year ago and I'm 35 years old. It took me so long to do that. And um, I think I say in the special, it's not even like I've had like a euphoric, amazing hilarious year it's just the absence of this intense discomfort that i almost didn't really realize was there and was so prevalent so to feel the absence of that kind of low level agony that that has been amazing and i didn't i didn't know that that kind of comfort was accessible to me i i or i sort of thought everyone felt like i was feeling and i don't think they are you know yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah it reminds me of something um i got to talk to sam smith not that not that long ago and, oh, nice. and they said something to me like that. They said, um, Tom, what, what, what you might not understand or what people might not understand um, is that the, when, when I changed my pronouns, when, when, I, when I just, you know, when I, when I had the more accurate pronoun of who I am, you know, which is the they and mm. their pronoun, I just felt great. I just felt better all the time. Like it, yeah. my life became incredibly easy Yeah. after that, you know? Yeah, easier. I mean, if you think about like the thing about the thing that you're most insecure about, like, you know, my my friend is super insecure about losing his hair. And so it's like, imagine you're going through your day and just everyone is constantly just commenting on your hair. So that's sort of what it felt like to constantly be misgendered or like, you know, have people. Yeah, it, it just felt like a, like you're constantly being poked in your most sensitive spot all the time. And so it's nice for that not to be happening so much. I love the way that May um, articulated that. It's such, a, such a, a beautiful way of saying that. Uh, you're listening to Q. I'm Tom Power. That was part one of my conversation with May Martin. You'll hear more of our conversation coming up. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. Comedy is like a self-esteem firing squad. It's it's so intense. It's just an immediate feedback of what you're, you're getting up on stage and going, do you guys like me? Like, do you like my personality? <laughs> yeah. I love comedy as a self-esteem firing squad. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with May Martin. We've been talking about their latest uh, Netflix comedy special, Sap. May is a Canadian comedian who got a lot of attention for telling stories about their childhood, uh, their family, you know, their as they as they say on public radio, their lived experience. But what happens when those experiences aren't that pleasant? Like, what happens when the experiences you want to talk about in your show aren't necessarily positive and then you take them and you put them into your tv show and you have to act them out again may's tv show feel good is semi-autobiographical it explores experiences may has had around relationships and addiction and in the second season may's character starts to realize that they are non-binary and may told me a little bit about how working on the second season of the show ended up influencing their own journey behind the scenes Here's the rest of my conversation with May Martin. 
How is doing improvised stand-up? It seems terrifying. It's so terrifying, and I love it so much because you can't worry about being cerebral or trying to, you know, you have to fall back on kind of clown-like instincts. Um, and it's based on audience questions, and then I use those to riff, and it just reminded me why I started doing comedy in the first place, and it gets a lot sillier, and um, yeah, and sometimes stumbling on really unexpected things or, or, or memories you haven't thought about in years. And you, you'll use words that you didn't even know were in your vocabulary that you're like, I don't think I've ever said that or used that expression in my life. It's, it's, it's really fun. And I, I record it um, on my phone and then listen back and see if there's anything worth saving and sift through it. So yeah, I, I really like it. I mean, it's interesting to go to that, like to the, to the improvised thing after working on Feel Good, because like Feel Good was so a, it was a scripted show. It was so about your own life. I mean, like really, really famously, like questions about gender or like reaffirming gender, like the character was going through it at the same time that you were going through it and was sort of mirroring your own experience. Like it's interesting to me to go from that to I don't want to have any kind of plan at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's a similarity in that with – you can really feel and feel good. I think that I'm like figuring things out in real time. It, uh, and maybe that's a common thread in everything I do. You can you can really feel that I'm just frantically trying to figure out what the hell is going on. But is the, aren't we all, but isn't the, is the experience of like, like, like I said, you, like you got to work out um, how to exist in the modern world and all that stuff through improvisation and trying to figure it out on stage. And you said, I use language I didn't even know I use. Like, What's the experience of like going through something personally and then at the same time writing about it through a character who is a lot like you? Uh, what you mean like with Feel Good? Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, I think the character was sort of, especially in season one, the character was like me 10 years ago. And then season two, I kind of caught up to myself and it was super interesting. It was like, it, I, I mean, in, in season one, for instance, you know, my character's grappling with gender stuff and and feelings of gender dysphoria. So then with season two and me and my co-writer were just sort of dispassionately, narratively thinking about where, where would it be satisfying to take the show? And it was like, well, obviously we presented this problem in season one and we have to resolve it in season two. When you think of me in your head, do you think of me like a like a boy or a girl, would you say? Just you, really. Yeah. More importantly, how how do you see you? Um, yeah, just me, really, I think. Yeah. But then that feels like not really a thing, or I don't know what that means. Or... I think that that is a thing. That's non-binary, May. I, I do think maybe you should Google it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I probably should Google it. So this character needs to sort that out and get on top of it, and it was like, oh, but I haven't sorted that out. I, I don't actually... <laughs> know how I feel. And so it, it sort of expedited some uh, introspection that was really necessary, I think. And and because it was the pandemic, I had time to sit and think and interrogate. So yeah, I, I found it really amazing. But look, it's no substitute for real therapy. And it's so tempting to think that it is any kind of comedy. It's like, and, and I want to clarify, because often when I'm talking about my comedy, it seems like this is just like, a therapeutic excavation of like trauma like it is truly just comedy you know yeah we just just before i talked to you i spoke to harry kondabolu and uh, he has that great line he said to me a little while ago which was like um hey so comedy can be therapeutic 
but it's not therapy. Like No. Yes, that's so true. Yeah, it's so not the same because you don't have uh, anybody challenging you. <laughs> you know, you're just you're challenging yourself and you're but you're it's very solipsistic. You're presenting your point of view and um yeah, it's not the same as and also it, yeah, you're uh, curating it for um approval and yeah, and for laughs. So it's it's very different to sitting in a room with someone judgment free, you know, in a, in a way comedy is like a self-esteem firing squad. It's, it's so intense and therapy should be the opposite of that. I hope. I love the idea of comedy being a self-esteem firing squad, meaning that like people yeah. are going to take you down at any stage they can. Well, they just, it's just an immediate feedback of what you're, you're getting up on stage and going, do you guys like me? Like, do you like my personality? <laughs> yeah. Um, I told you I had a surprise for you. Yeah. So before we let you go, we talked to someone who has known you for a really long time. Oh, God. And we, we asked him to record something. <sighs> and let's, let's listen to it. Oh, my God. I'm Carolyn Taylor. I've known May Martin from the time they were, I think, 13, wearing braces with, like, slick back hair and a tight bun or something, uh, coming to see uh, the shows night after night at Second City. Um, I haven't seen SAP on Netflix yet, but uh, they performed it at the Danforth Music Hall back in May, and I did an opening set for them. So I was watching them sort of from the side of the stage. And just to see May go out there, the crowd went wild, like, like they were the Beatles. Like it was just, <laughs> I was waiting for people to be like tearing their hair out and climbing on the stage. <laughs> and to watch May up there and the intimacy and connection that they're able to create with an audience and their ability to find humor in the darkest darkest of experiences and times and everything you know that they've gone through in their own personal journey and to watch them navigate uh, their careers and use their experiences to fuel their art and to fuel connection is is really amazing and I think we're all super lucky to have me on the planet I gotta tell you that yeah so what do you make of that Oh man, that's so nice. That's so, so moving. And I wish I could, if I could go back in time to my 13 year old self and, and play that. And also I, I, I said the same thing about Carolyn, you know, yeah, we, we've, we've been friends for so long now and seen each other through these different iterations of our, of our personalities. And yeah. And Carolyn was a really amazing presence in my life and in my teens when, when I, um, I, yeah, after I, I got kicked out and I got banned from Second City and I kind of felt very isolated. I lost a lot of friends and Carolyn always was very boundaried with me. Like she wasn't crossing boundaries with me, but she would just pick me up once a month in her shitty old car <laughs> and take me for a hamburger or we'd go and do laser tag or we'd do something really wholesome and age appropriate and talk. And yeah, and I just was so grateful that she kept that friendship going in a sort of mentorship position and then that developed into a legit friendship. And now we, yeah, she cracks me up so much. Yeah. We went on a trip to Wales uh, together. That was one of the worst vacations of like everything went wrong. We were, it was a disaster, what happened? but it was, Oh, just like, like the Airbnb we stayed in was infested with giant spiders. It was stuff like that. <laughs> like she got, diarrhea on top of a mountain like everything went wrong <laughs> and um i'm sure she won't mind me saying that but um it was the best trip because i we were just hysterically crying with laughter the whole time but yeah that's i'm very touched by that 
Oh, it's 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 really lovely. Um, before before I let you go, sort of the overarching theme of the of the stand up special is is this idea we were talking about of finding moments of joy or comfort, even when it feels like there's a lot of terrible things going on. So um, maybe before I go, you could just give me some things that are giving you some happiness these days, some joy these days. Sure. Um, well, I just moved to LA and. I've never lived in a city with so much nature so close by. So I've been, I've been out hiking and stuff and that's always good. Also music. Like I, I play guitar and I, um, I just started recording songs with my friends and that brings me a lot of joy. Cause it's a totally different. Are you writing? Yeah. Yeah. I have, I've recorded an album, no. but yeah, I don't know if I'll put it out. You gotta put it out. I hope so. Yeah. I'd like to. What are but... the songs about? What are you writing about? You know, just sort of being alive and yeah, there are a lot of love songs, you know, but yeah, I hope maybe one day I'll do something with it, but I also don't want to ruin the joy of it by trying to monetize it, you know, but, um, so yeah, music, listening to music, food, friends, uh, dogs in any, any dog. Um, do you have a dog? Yeah, I don't. And I, I, I travel too much, but I'm, Deeply, profoundly obsessed. I'm trying to get. I'm thinking. Well, not trying to get. I'm trying to get one. Sounds like they're not letting me have one. Yeah. Are, yeah. I'm. I'm, I'm trying. Th- I'm, trying. <laughs> I'm trying to get one, but I'm banned from every SPCA <laughs> in Toronto. I'm. Um. I. I really want to get one, but I. I don't know. I'm nervous about it too. What kind? Big or small? You know, I've been thinking about a corgi. Like the yeah, queen, like corgi. The queen. Yeah, that would be fun. Corgi mix would be good too. Like a corgi mix with something. Yeah. Yeah, corgi German Shepherd. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a gigantic corgi. Um, May, we, we loved your special so much here. Um, Thank and, you. And I've been looking forward to talking to you for so long. And thanks for... I'm so glad we made it happen. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for making the time. I spoke with May Martin a few months ago. Uh, I got an update for you. I still don't have a dog. That was my conversation with the comedian May Martin. May's new stand-up special is called Sap, and it's available to stream on Netflix. Molly Tuttle, and you're listening to Q with Tom Power. Bruce Stern is one of those legendary actors. He's been in Oscar-nominated films like Coming Home and Nebraska, Silent Running, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? In terms of the directors this guy's worked with, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock, Francis Ford Coppola, Alexander Payne. He's been in Quentin Tarantino movies like Django Unchained, uh, The Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You might remember in that one he played uh, George Spawn, who owned the Spawn Ranch and was still there when the Manson family took over. Uh, his daughter is uh, Laura Dern, who's also a legendary actor, has been on the show before. Bruce's latest film is a new Canadian film called Hands That Bind, which is a prairie gothic drama set in 80s rural Alberta. But when we got a chance to talk to Bruce Bruce Dern, this is what we talked about. There's a bit of inside film stuff that I find really interesting. I thought you might find interesting, too. See, directors like to use Bruce Dern a lot. And the way they like to use him is they like him to utilize this acting thing that's named for him, the Dernsey. The Dernsey, uh, the title was coined by Jack Nicholson, and it references Bruce's habit of ad-libbing in scenes. It's something that came out of his time at the actor's studio. So I recently got the chance to talk to Bruce Dern for a few minutes, and I wanted to find out more about the 
Dernsey, and he told me exactly what happened when he did one to Brad Pitt. One of the things I know about you is the is the idea of like a Dernsey, like the idea of like ad-libbing uh, or like speaking on behalf of a character. Does that come from like learning at the actor's studio? Well, what it what it does is, so they said, all the things you work on this first year, we want you to have no obligation to dialogue. So you're a silent partner in every scene you do. So I had to do a lot of, uh, um, you know, different kinds of things that I didn't speak in. What they were trying to do is because they said, you don't have any bad habits. So since you've never done this before, let's start with your heart and take everything from your heart. And everybody says, well, why did you leave the theater and go to films? Well, films are the theater, if you haven't noticed. There's 75 people standing around doing whatever they're doing watching you do that. That's theater to me. They're live human beings and they got to watch it nine, ten times sometimes. Again and again and again. So that was what they wanted to do. And then when they felt I was ready to come out, because uh, Anne said to me, understand something. When you go into a meeting, you're going to be recognized only for the fifth cowboy from the right. And if you have a line or two, you're lucky. Right. So make sure that every role you take is from your heart and starts with you. And... If the dialogue isn't there on the page and you feel something that you're feeling or going through, say it in the scene, even though it's not on the page. Right. And I said, how do I get away with that? He said, it's real simple, Bruce. The director has something that you will never, ever have. And I said, what's that? Take two. <laughs> it's not permission granted. It's whatever you're feeling. And because it'll be real, people won't stop it. Right. Okay. That's why I never tell anybody what I'm going to do in a scene. So, I so, rehearse, but I don't rehearse behavior. Like Quentin has said, and Alexander Payne, and even Francis Coppola. We can't write the shit that he says. Right. Because yeah. it comes out of him. He doesn't rehearse it. He doesn't know what it's going to be. You know, and a perfect example is in, uh, um, did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I was just about to ask you about, ask you about that. I heard a story. Yeah, of course I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. I, I heard the story so, about you and, and you and Brad Pitt, right? Right. So... He comes in and starts shaking me to get awake. George? Okay. Yeah, you're playing and like I a version like of Spawn, like Spawn uh, from Spawn Ranch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I worked, I worked in front of George Spawn at least seven times right. in real life. 
So, so what happens? So, so Brad Pitt comes in. He's shaking you to wake up. You're you're like asleep there. Uh, you're, you're George Spawn. You're asleep there in the scene. Right. So he finally gets me awake, and I the first thing I say finally is just, well, what's what's going on, George? Oh. Hi, George. What's going on? Uh, everything's all right. I'm sorry to disturb you. Uh, who are you? And uh, Brad giggled and kind of broke up a little bit. And uh, Quentin cut the camera. He turned to Brad and he said, don't ever cut a camera on the director again. Right. Which he did. He just said, Brad, not in hushed tones, but not through a microphone either, but cupped his hands. And he said, stop acting. And he said, well, that, I, I deal because that wasn't in the script. He said, no shit. That's why the man is here. Because I can't write that shit. I'm sitting down writing for 44 characters in a movie. And I'm going to slip up on stuff like that. And Bruce Dern's the only guy I've ever known who does that real simply, real easily. It comes naturally. And so then we started the scene again. And then finally, I pulled up and I said, you know, I, he pulls me up almost right next to his face. And because uh, I'm laying in the bed. And he says, uh, and I say, you know what? I really don't know who. You are not quite give a shit. But you did something today that really touched me. You came to see me. I don't know who you are. But you touched me today. You came to visit me. Now I got to go back to sleep. That's a dirty. And... When that take was over, I didn't count eyes, but every single person was stunned. Brad, the most stunned, because, like Brad said, how does he come up with that? You don't write that. He said, I couldn't write it, because he's the person then. And he said, but how does he guarantee that? Because it comes from his heart, Brad. You got one. Use it. So, so I, 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 I love that story, and and I heard well, this. Well, and like that, I, I love you telling me a little bit about like how you learned that from the actor studio and the story of the actor studio. But I, I remember well, I got to talk to Laura not that long ago. Laura was here just a few few months ago at, at the at TIFF at the Toronto Festival, and I asked her what she learned from you and and from her mom about acting growing up. And I want, Bruce, I wanted to play you a little bit about what she said. Just, just take a listen to this. Okay. Certainly for my parents, you know, being raised in the actor's studio with Lee Strasberg being their teacher and my dad even teaching at the studio for many years, you know, what they taught and, and how they taught me is about the emotional process, which, which affords healing because it's about self-discovery and it's about looking at wounds, you know, the, the artist as the wounded healer idea. 
That's Laura Dern at the 2022 Toronto International Film Festival. Bruce, what do you make of that, the, the advice that Laura got from you growing up? All I said to Laura, I said, look, they turn the switch on. Do nothing before the switch is on. I mean, walk the positions for the camera, but no performing. And then when it's time and they say action, don't perform. Just be. Take advantage of the now. What's happening now? Um, you saw Nebraska? Yeah, I saw Nebraska. Okay. I had a great one in Nebraska. We go up into the old house after the big Thanksgiving dinner uh, to my old house. And we walk upstairs and my, my wife says, oh, just about the way I remember it. Last tornado it came through, I forget the name of it, but hadn't been touched since then. And that was 37 years ago. This is about how your mother kept it. And so we're climbing up these stairs to the second floor and we look into a bedroom. In the bedroom is a shattered window with just 10% glass in it. The rest is just a frame. A broken down bed for one. Bigger than a crib, but still a bed for one. A tricycle with only two wheels on it. And a couple of paintings, pictures leaning against the wall of two people in each one. No famous painting or anything like that. June says, you know, that was Woody's bed too. Woody slept in the bed with David, and that's who you were named after. But uh, David never got the disease. Right. And then there's a cut. I went over to Alexander and I said, I don't know what. He says, I, and not only that, but I know you're not going to tell me. So it doesn't make any difference how long you need. I said, no more than three seconds. And he said, what do you need? I said, just don't cut the camera for three seconds from when you want to cut it. Let it go three more seconds. Okay. So, Will Forte says, do you remember that, Dad? And I said, I was there. That's where Woody's brother David died. You remember that, Dad? I was there. Dernsies. Dernsies, isn't that great? The great actor Bruce Dern telling great stories about this, uh, I guess we can call it an acting technique he has called the Dernsey. Bruce is in a new Canadian film called Hands That Bind. You can watch that film now on demand. All right, that is it for the show today. Uh, tomorrow on the show, I'm very excited about this. We got to have a conversation with Jeremy Allen White. Do you know Jeremy Allen White? He plays Carmi, the lead in The Bear, my pick for best TV show of the year. He also plays Kerry Von Erich, the Texas Tornado, in the new movie, The Iron Claw. So Jeremy Allen White will be here to talk about what those two characters have in common, and I get to thank him for giving me the confidence 
to buy a white t-shirt. That's tomorrow on the show. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.